Well, good morning, Two Rivers. It's good to be here with you. My name is Dave. If you are joining us in Amped, if you're over in Blend, Roan County Beard, and if you're online, glad to be with you today. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, we've been in a series called Supernatural. And so in order for us to understand where we're going today, we actually need to rewind and look back. So maybe if you're here for the first time, this is a Cliff Notes version of where we've been, and if you've been with us this whole time, this may just be a reminder of where we've been. As we've been looking at this series called Supernatural, one of the questions we're asking is, how do we have a biblical worldview? How do we view the world grounded and rooted in the scriptures? You see, so often in the church, we think that a biblical worldview is something along the lines of, it's my job to overcome obstacles in this life with God's help. The problem is, that's not a biblical worldview. And what we've talked about is that a biblical worldview, if we're gonna have a biblical worldview, we need to understand that my only hope is to know God and what he says. That foundationally is, is a biblical worldview, is to know God. We're actually gonna talk more about what does it mean to know God today? But if we are to view the world with a biblical worldview, we need to absolutely know God, not just know things about God. We need to know him, and as we know him, we're actually gonna do what he says. One of the ways that we've seen as we've been studying through the book of Exodus, is that if we are to know God and what he says, then we'll understand that God will be known by his power. God will be absolutely known by his power. One of the phrases that we're gonna see throughout our text this morning is the mighty hand of God. And we've been looking at these nine so far strikes, or, or oftentimes we call them plagues. We've seen God's mighty hand at work, and he is striking the Egyptians with these horrible plagues, these things of gnats and boils and flies and blood and darkness and hail and all of these things. And he's not only displaying his power to everyone who's in Egypt, and not only just to Pharaoh, but he's also displaying his power to the physical world and the supernatural, the spiritual realm. God is essentially declaring himself, and he's proving himself, and he's going, listen, I am the supreme God above all of the other little g gods. I'm the supreme one. I am ruler, I am master over all of those. And last week, as we were getting towards the 10th plague, we saw that if we're to know God, we need to remember that his salvation comes through judgment. That God's salvation is through judgment. That God was pouring out his judgment and his wrath, and it was gonna be seen, and it's gonna be seen this week, of the taking of the firstborn. And yet, we saw last week that God made a way. He paved a way for people to be saved. This week, this is our big idea, this is what we're gonna see, is that if we are to know God, actually know God, we must experience a salvation. 
We cannot know God until we actually experience the salvation and freedom that comes through knowing him. We're gonna pick up the story in Exodus chapter 12. We're gonna be starting at verse 29. And, and as we looked last week, one of the things that we saw, God laid out all the instructions for Passover. He said, hey, at midnight, this is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna come through the land. Here's what you have to do. He said, I want you to sacrifice a lamb and I want you to take the blood from that lamb and I want you to paint the doorpost around your door and I want you to go inside the door and I want you to eat this meal and here's what it's gonna be. It's gonna be unleavened bread. You don't have time to wait for that bread to rise. It's gonna be a flat wafer. That's what you're gonna eat and you're gonna eat it this way. You're gonna have your sandals on your feet. You're gonna have your tunic wrapped around you. You're gonna have your staff in your hand. You are going to be ready to leave and he says, why? Because tonight is the Lord's Passover. And then we get to verse 29. And the things that God has been warning them about take place. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve Yahweh as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in their sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. This, let's call it what it is. This was a terrible night in the land of Egypt. The Egyptians had been seeing the hand of God being poured out. They experienced the darkness. They experienced the hail. They experienced all of these strikes that Yahweh God was pouring out on the people and the gods of Egypt, and now the rumor began to start, hey, we hear there's another one coming, and this one's gonna be worse than all the other ones. It's gonna be death. I'm sure there wasn't much sleeping for the Egyptians that night. I'm sure the parents were staying awake all night, keeping an eye on their kids, and I can imagine that as they begin to check on their kids, as they're staying awake, and I can imagine the screams coming out through the, through the night as the parents wake to discover that their firstborn kid is gone. I'm sure Pharaoh woke up at some point, if he was ever even asleep, and he went to check on his firstborn and finds that he's dead, and that was the breaking point. He sent word to Moses and Aaron, and he said, listen, get up, go, you see what he says, up, go from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, get out of here. Serve Yahweh as you have said, take everything with you. And then he says this, bless me also. It's fascinating that this king of Egypt, if you look all the way back in chapter five, 
Moses went to the king and he said, let my people go. And what'd he say? I don't know Yahweh. Why would I let your, why would I let you go? Get back to work. You're being lazy. I don't know Yahweh. I have no idea who he is. Why would I listen to this God Yahweh? Get back to work. And now what happens? He says, go and serve Yahweh. He knows exactly who Yahweh is now, but here's the problem. To know things about God is different than actually knowing God. To know things about God, to know things about Yahweh, is far different than actually knowing who Yahweh is. It's this last strike that Pharaoh goes, that's it, get out, serve Yahweh. I've seen his hand, I've seen his mighty hand, I've seen everything he's done, he's caused chaos in the land. Now you gotta understand something. Pharaoh was a little g god. It was his job to make sure that order was maintained in his world. And there was a plan that, that what would happen is the king of Egypt, would, it would be a succession plan that his son would overtake the throne and he would become God Pharaoh. And so there was this plan that had taken place for presumably generations and all of a sudden Yahweh God comes in and disrupts everything. Everything's in chaos, including the succession plan. And it's at this point that Pharaoh goes, Get out, serve Yahweh, he's mightier than us. And he says this weird phrase, bless me also. What does he mean? There's some people who are like, maybe he's getting it. Maybe he's about to like bend his knee to Yahweh. No, I don't think so. You know what I think he was doing? I think he's going, Yahweh's made a fool of me. Get out of here, and what I want is things to return back to normal. So bless me also, make things return back to normal. Make, make it so that the chaos and the decreation that's taken place, make that stop so that things can go back to normal and we can pick up the pieces and try to figure out how to get things back. I don't think he's saying bless me because I want to know who Yahweh is. He's going, no, get out of here. I want things to return to normal. Things, knowing things about Yahweh is so different than actually knowing and experiencing Yahweh. I went to Israel many years ago, and uh, it was a trip of youth pastors. So there was uh, probably about 30-ish youth pastors that we went, uh, we flew from Los Angeles over to Tel Aviv and loaded on a bus, and, and we met our tour guide. Now, to be a tour guide in Israel, you have to have a master's degree. I mean, these guys are smart. If you've been to Israel, you know. And so our tour guide, his name is Ronan, he would go to these places, and he knew the scriptures better than any youth pastor on that bus. I don't know what that says about our youth pastors, but he was better than that. I mean, he would, we would pull up to a site, and he's like, you know, in 1 Samuel or 1 Kings when it says, and I'm sitting there going, I'm not brushed up on 1 Kings right now, sorry. You know, in Amos, I'm like, Amos? Who pulls out Amos? Come on. Like, 
And he would just say these things. He knew the land, he knew the scriptures, and he could quote it, he knew exactly what happened in that place, and he would explain it, and it was incredible. You wanna know the problem is? He didn't actually believe it. He never actually surrendered his life to God. He knew all the traditions, he knew the scriptures, he knew the land, he knew what happened in that place, but he actually never submitted and bent his knee to King Jesus. You see, there's a big difference between knowing things about God and truly knowing God. The only way we experience salvation is by believing God. The only way that we can actually know him and to experience him is by believing him, by trusting him. The Israelites, they were getting ready for this night. God had laid out the plan. He says, here's what's gonna happen. I'm going to move through the land and anyone who does not have blood on the doorpost, I'm gonna strike them. But if you do have blood on the doorpost, I'm gonna spare you. He provided a means of salvation. He made a way. And you know what the Israelites did? Look at what it says in verses 50 and 51 in chapter 12. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, Yahweh brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. You see that? Israel did all that Yahweh commanded. They did it. They believed God. Belief is never just an intellectual ascent. They believed him to the point of action. And let's be honest, the very things that God was asking them to do really didn't make much sense, did it? He commands the people, hey, I want you to slaughter a lamb at twilight. And they're like, okay. And so, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the blood of that lamb and I want you to paint your doorpost. Why would we do that? Just do it. Okay, God, that's gonna mess up our paint. We just put a fresh coat of paint on the house. The blood's really hard to get off. And so what do they do? They did it. And he says, hey, I want you to eat unleavened bread. God, that's gross. We don't wanna eat unleavened bread. He's like, you don't have time. Don't, you don't have time for that. And I want you to eat with your tunic and your sandals on, and I want you to eat standing up. You're gonna be in a rush. And they're like, okay. Can we just be honest? Sometimes the things that God asks of us doesn't make any sense. It, it, it makes zero sense. And we're sitting there and we're going, God, you're asking me to do this, but that doesn't make sense. And, and he's going, yeah, but do you trust me? Do you believe me? And the Israelites trusted him to the point of actually doing what he said. And as they did what he said, what happened? They experienced his protection. It's as we walk in this belief, in this absolute trust of doing what God said that we experience the power of God in our lives. When we walk in trust, we experience God's power in our lives. This was many years ago and um, I was newly married and I knew that in order to do what God was asking me to do, I knew I needed more schooling. I knew God was calling me for, to, to go to more schooling, but here's the problem. We were newly married, and I don't know about you when you were newly married, we ain't got no money. 
And so I told my wife, I'm like, I, I just know that God, I need, to, I need to go to more schooling. And she goes, well, how are we going to afford that? And I went, I don't know. She goes, okay. So I enrolled in school and started going to classes. And then I remember we were living in this little apartment. And I remember one day going out to the mailbox and I, and I got the mail and there it was. It was, a, it was a bill from the school. And I remember my heart sunk because I remember walking back going, this is gonna be my eviction notice from school. Because I'm gonna get this, I'm gonna realize I can't pay for this and I'm not gonna be able to continue to do to continue to go to school. And so I, I opened up the, the, the bill and I looked at it and it said I had a negative $4,200 balance. Now, hear me. When I was in undergraduate school, I was not an econ major. I took math for dummies. I had no idea, okay? And so I majored in Bible, for goodness sake. And so, so I'm reading this, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I owe $4,200. That was going to be it. I, don't, I can't do this. And my wife looks at it, and she goes, is that what that means? I'm like, I don't know. So what I do, I got on the phone and I called the school and I said, hey, we just got this bill thing in the mail. And um, she goes, well, let me look up your account. And she looks up the account and she goes, oh no, that's a negative $4,200 balance. I'm like, yeah, is that what I owe? She goes, no. She goes, somebody paid that on your behalf and that's gonna cover your first year of school. And I remember sitting down on our white leather hand-me-down couches with tears running down my face, and my wife goes, what happened? And I said, my first year's covered. When you walk in obedience to what God is asking you to do, you experience the power of God in ways that you would go, oh my gosh, I didn't know how it was gonna work. Now, hear me, it took me 10 more years to graduate. I should have a doctorate, but I don't. <laughs> I ended up with a master's, but I ended up with no school debt either, but that first year was covered. Why? Because when we believe and trust God to the point of going, I don't know how this is gonna work, but I'm gonna obey anyway because you've asked me to do it, we experience his salvation in ways that we would never know otherwise. As God, the story continues, as God leads his people out of slavery, we pick up in Exodus chapter 13, verses one through three. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, underline that if you have your scriptures, because that repeats through there. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place, and no leavened bread shall be eaten. If you remember back, we saw earlier in the book of Exodus that Israel, the nation, was declared to be God's firstborn. Israel, as a nation, was God's firstborn, and now he's delivered them. He's redeemed them from slavery. He's led them out, and now what does God say? Now you're going to dedicate your firstborn to me. I've paid for you, you are my possession. And I like the way Christopher Wright, who writes in Exodus commentary, I like the way that he describes the dedication of the firstborn. He says it, this dedication of the firstborn, was a symbolic declaration of the nature of the relationship between Israel and Yahweh. 
namely, one of complete belonging to Yahweh as his possession, and that on the basis of the deliverance from Egypt, what Yahweh had redeemed from death belonged to him. God looks at this nation, he says, you're my firstborn, I've delivered you, I've saved you, you've experienced my salvation, you've experienced my freedom, you're mine. You're mine. And salvation, this experiencing God's salvation is the beginning of a new life lived with God. And that's exactly what Israel experienced. And we're gonna see that even more as they go to the Red Sea, as they cross through the Red Sea, that their world was now completely centered on God. Their calendar, their whole world was reoriented to who Yahweh was and what Yahweh has done. He was going to change them as a people to reflect who he was to the world outside. The Israelites were not just gonna know things about God. They were gonna know God personally. Now, let me just ask a question. How many of you have ever been married or are currently married? Raise your hand. I had a guy last night, he's like this. And he's sitting next to a spouse. I'm like, bro, you gotta not do that. You either in or out, bro, not this thing. It was so weird. <laughs> They're getting counseling this week, so. Um, <laughs> no, it was really funny. I'm like, what does that mean? So if you've been married, then when you are gonna get married, you think you know the person, don't you? Like I hope you do, unless you had an arranged marriage. Um, you think you know the person. I dated my wife for five years before we got married. I, I thought I knew her, and she's looking at me going, I thought I knew you. But then you get married, and what happens? Very quickly you go, who is this stranger living in my house? You realize, I don't know them. But what happens? The more you spend time together, the longer you spend time together, what happens? You begin to actually know them. You, you begin to go, I don't even need to ask them what they're thinking right now because I can see it all over them. I know exactly what they're thinking. You can be in a group setting and you can look at them and you know it's time to leave. <laughs> they don't have to say anything. But you know. Why? Because the more time you spend with that person, you, yeah, you still know things about them but you know the nuances, you know what makes them tick. And this is the kind of relationship that God was going to have with the Israelites. But the problem is, you can't have that kind of relationship without first experiencing his salvation that comes by believing him. And it's as we experience his salvation by believing him that he begins to change us fundamentally from the inside out. Now, doing what I do, I get to hear a lot of people's stories. I get to teach our membership class. It's called Wade In, and plug, we're starting a new membership class next week, so if you haven't joined in, we would love to have you. But it's a four-week class, and on the fourth week, it's one of my favorite weeks, because we get to hear people's stories. 
we hear people's stories of how God radically transforms lives. And sometimes the stories are a little bit frustrating for me. And you're like, you're a pastor. They should not be frustrating. These are the frustrating stories for me. When I hear the work that somebody was completely anti-God, they've been addicted to whatever they're addicted to. I was walking my own way. I had nothing and no care, no desire for God. And then God got a hold of me. And what happened? I flipped around and I'm not even tempted by the very thing that I used to be addicted to. God did a radical work in my life. And I hear that story and I'm, and I'm blown away. It's so encouraging. And it's so amazing, but then I look at my life and I go, God, why does it still feel like I struggle with the same things I did from high school? How is it that you can do that incredible work of transformation in their life? And I don't, I'm not berating that story. That's an amazing story. And I praise God for what he has done in their lives. But I wonder, God, why aren't you working in my life that same way? And as I, was, as I was thinking about that, as I was reflecting on that, it's easier to see God working and changing people and reorienting their lives. It's easier to see that in other people than it is to see it in our own lives, isn't it? It's like watching your kids grow. I still remember, I have a, I have a daughter who is a senior in high school. She's 17 years old. She's a beautiful young woman. But it seems like yesterday that I was walking up, holding her hand, walking her into a preschool class in San Diego. And it was just yesterday because I had to do her hair because mom would be at work and she would have crooked pigtails. Because I didn't know how to do it. And she's like, dad, they're messed up. I'm like, they're great, sweetie. You look great. And I remember holding her hand and walking her up to class. And now I look her eye to eye. And I go, what happened? Where did the time go? Because when you watch your own kids grow in your own household, you don't wake up one day and go, oh my gosh, you're so much taller today. The only way that you know that your kids are growing is by what? The marks on the wall. And you put a mark on the wall at the beginning of the school year and you put a mark on the wall at the end of the school year and you go, oh my gosh, you grew three inches this year. And the only other way you know is that you have to buy them new shoes and new pants. But as they grow day by day in your own household, you don't see the growth that's taking place. And I think oftentimes, now God can do whatever God wants to do. He can radically change somebody's life and remove addiction and all that stuff. And he can do those things. Why? Because he's Yahweh God. He's all, all powerful. He can do whatever he wants to do. But I, what I've seen in my life and what I've seen in a lot of your lives is that he works incrementally over time. And so that he changes you slowly over time as we continually walk with him. And it's the slow change that sometimes it's frustrating, but I encourage you, look at times in the rearview mirror of going, wow, God, you've actually brought about change in my life and in my world. I'm, I'm a little bit more patient maybe today than I was three years ago. Thank you, God. God is working that change in our lives as we reorient as we live a new life with him as we continually experience a salvation. And it's these things, it's experiencing God's salvation that compels us to remember and to tell God's story. 
I love how clear God's word is at times. God laid out in the midst of this salvific act, in the midst of freeing Israel from slavery, God laid out specific instructions as to what the Passover was to be. And it was to be a continual reminder to them, year after year after year, even today, it is a reminder to them. Why did God go to such great lengths to explain what Passover was gonna be? It's simply this, we forget. We as human beings are a forgetful people and God knows us better than we know ourselves. We forget things. The Israelites, they're freed from slavery. We're gonna see this in a few weeks. They cross the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. God does incredible things. And I look at that and I go, if I was there, I would never forget that. But what happens? The Israelites cross through the Red Sea. They wander into the desert for three days. And what do they do? They complain. God, we got no water here. Why did you bring us out here just to die? They forget. And we forget. We forget the story. God laid out Passover I love the way the author writes it in Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 14. It says this, and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand, there it is again, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. God is very specific about these instructions. He's going, you're gonna forget. And he goes, one day, you know what's gonna happen? Your kids are gonna start complaining about Passover meal. Mom, why do we have to eat unleavened bread? This isn't any good. Why do we have to eat wafers? I like a thick French loaf. Mom, why are we eating? I don't like bitter herbs. Why do we have to eat this? Do I have to eat it? And the mom and dad are going, three more big bites. You got to eat it. And why do we have to eat it? And God's going, that's the time that you get to tell my story. It's in the midst of the complaining, it's in the midst of the questioning that you get to go, God freed us. And let me tell you about that crazy night that happened so many years ago. God delivered us, he freed us, he brought about salvation to our household. God knows there's gonna be questions in the future, so God built in plans to be able to tell the story. But here's what happens in our culture today. There are two things in our culture that are taboo that we don't talk about, what are they? Religion and politics. I just gotta warn you, Thanksgiving is not that far away from, I mean, we're just a few months away. So maybe you gotta start preparing now. Crazy uncle's gonna be there and he's gonna talk about those very two things and it's gonna cause a disturbance at the table. And here's the problem, if you don't have the crazy uncle, you might be the crazy uncle. <laughs> so, religion and politics. Why? Because oftentimes we don't talk about that because it's personal. It's personal. So religion, politics are personal. But here's the problem with that kind of thinking. 
Is trusting Jesus as your Savior and Lord, is that a personal decision? 100% absolutely, but it was never meant to be private. The story of what God has done in our lives is a very personal thing, but it was meant to be shared. The story must be shared. I've grown up in a Christian home, and I know that my mom and dad love Jesus I know that they follow Jesus. In fact, I remember when I was a kid and I would walk past my, room, uh, my parents' room on Saturday mornings, I was gonna be going to watch cartoons, and my dad had a one-year Bible. Remember the one-year Bibles? He had that on his bed, and he would be laying in bed reading his one-year Bible. I just knew it. I knew that they loved Jesus, they followed Jesus, we went to church, we prayed together. I would consider ourselves a pretty normal Christian family growing up. But it wasn't until a few months ago that my dad and I were driving. My parents live out here now. They moved out here. And my dad and I were driving. And we were talking things about church and about ministry and these different things. And, and all of a sudden, my dad just said something. He goes, well, that's how I was saved. And I went, wait, what? And he said, yeah, when I started dating your mom, he goes, I grew up in a Catholic home. And I knew that. And, uh, but... When I started dating your mom, I started going to her church. It was a Baptist church, and the preacher would just lay out the gospel very logically, and my dad's a very logical thinker, and my dad heard it, and he goes, it was as if it just all of a sudden made sense. And I'm sitting there listening to his story, and it struck me, oh my gosh, I've always known my dad's a believer. I've always known that he loved the Lord. I've always known that my mom is the same way. And I'm going, but I've never heard his story. Why have I never heard his story? And I went, because we were so busy just going from one thing to the next that it's like we forget to tell the story. And hearing his story, I was sitting in that car just so encouraged going, oh my gosh, like thank you God for a pastor that laid out something so logically that my dad goes, yeah, I get it. Our stories have to be told. And in telling the story, telling the story is an act of remembering. We remember what God has done as we tell our story. It has to be told. But here's, here's where we run into trouble, is that oftentimes we don't wanna tell our story. We don't wanna tell our story, one, because Here's one of the most reasons I get, my story's not that good. My story's not that good. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home and it's not your story. It's God's story. And anytime God brings a person from death to life, that's an incredible story. And that story has to be told. So if you think your story isn't that good, you need to reorient your thinking that it's not your story, it's what God has done in you. You're just, a, you're just a subplot in what God is doing. Your story has to be told. I also hear this. Um, well, I mean, I don't really wanna brag. I mean, it's, it doesn't seem very humble to tell your story. You didn't save yourself. If you could save yourself, you would have already done it. But we all need a savior and his name is Jesus. 
And he's the one that did the work. He's the one that provided a way. He's the one that paved the way of salvation. And guess what? It's not bragging on you. If you're telling your story and it's a brag on you, you're telling your story wrong. When you tell your story, it's bragging of, I didn't deserve it, I didn't do anything to earn it, and yet God did for me what I could never do for myself. It's his story, and it needs to be told. There's another side to stories. We need to be incredible storytellers of what God has done, but we also need to be incredibly curious as God's followers, learn to ask questions. Learn to ask people their story. I don't know why I never asked my dad his story. I don't know why. But learn to ask others their story because when you ask them, it causes them to remember all the goodness and the victories that God has done in their own life. So what do we do with this this next week? What are our next steps? It's, there's only a couple of them this week. And here's what it is. One, is that we need to be connected to each other. We need to be relationally connected to God and to other people so that we can share the victories, we can share the stories. If you go to 2rc.tv slash events, you're gonna see everything that's going on here at Two Rivers Church. And can I tell you, we are not a church that is sitting there that's just like, hey, we wanna do events for events sake. We do events so that people can be connected to Jesus and to each other. And so there's a few of them coming up that I just want to highlight. A grandparenting summit that is coming up. If you have grandkids, you have a story to share. You have a story that needs to be told. Your story of following Jesus needs to be told. And a grandparenting summit is coming up that will help you do that. We have our membership class coming up. Wait in. If you've been coming to Two Rivers, maybe brand new or maybe for a little while and you're like, I wanna learn more about who you are as Two Rivers. Come to this class, and one of my favorite weeks is week four to share your story. We got to practice sharing our story so that it just becomes natural of who we are, that we don't need to fear sharing what God has done in our lives. The third thing is we have an all-in prayer night that's coming up. I encourage you to come out September 13th. We're gonna pray about God's kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Come join us for that. It's a chance to be with other believers to celebrate the victories of what God is doing. The second thing is this, do the live it out this week. Do the live it out, why? Because on Monday, there's always a question to ask God. On Monday this week, you're gonna ask God this question, who can I share my story with? And if you're a parent or if you're a grandparent, you ask this question, I'm going to give you an answer. I want you to hear my voice and let it be the voice of God, okay? Uh, but tell your kids your story. Tell your kids. You have people, you have little disciples in your own house that need to hear your story. You have grandkids that need to hear your story. But ask God the question, God, who is it that I can share my story with? And on Wednesday this week, who do I need to ask their story? Now, I wanna give a little bit of context to this, okay? If you meet someone for the very first time, you're like, hey, Jeff, my name's Dave. Nice to meet you. Tell me your salvation story. That's weird. Don't do that, okay? That's weird. If you're meeting someone for the first time, you can go, hey, Jeff, tell me your story. Tell me about yourself. 
but maybe there's people in your world that you've known for a long time that you should probably know their salvation story. Go and ask them. Tell me your salvation story. What has God done in your life? Because every time we tell the story, we remember and we celebrate the victory that God has done. We remember those things. And so what we're gonna do right now over all our campuses, all our venues, is we're gonna worship the God who has given us victory and who has given us salvation. And that's worthy of worship. So in this, in this room, all rooms, let's stand up together. I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna worship the God of salvation. God, thank you that you provided a way, that you made a way for us to experience your salvation. And as we experience your salvation, we move from knowing things about you to actually knowing you. So God, we praise you. It's in your name we pray, amen.